0: Often compared to the Roman monarch Marcus Aurelius because of his stoic nature and love of knowledge, Pedro II served Brazil well as its second and final emperor. Throughout the 19th century, this South American nation rapidly modernized, even prospered, and for all intents and purposes, showed signs of becoming a world power in its own right, right alongside the likes of Britain and the United States. This was thanks in large part to his efforts. And yet, despite having garnered a reputation for being one of the most beloved of Brazilian leaders, he never intended or even wanted to sit upon its imperial throne. But circumstances beyond his control were responsible for his ascent, and his legacy is still discussed, even admired by Brazilians to the present day. Just who was this extraordinary man, how did he become emperor of Brazil, and what did he achieve in the country's formative years as an independent nation? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and bem-vindo. welcome to this episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. By the time of Pedro II's birth on December 2nd, 1825, the country he would one day come to rule had been independent for a decade. For a period of over three centuries, beginning in 1500 and ending in 1815, Brazil had been a colonial possession of one of the greatest maritime empires on earth, Portugal. At its height, this mighty conglomeration stretched across the globe, with its tentacles extending from its base of operations in the capital city of Lisbon, west across the Atlantic to South America and the Caribbean, south to the shores of West Africa, and east all the way to India and southern China. Geographically, to say nothing of conveniently located along South America's eastern-facing coast, Brazil grew wealthy from the role it played in the various seafaring trade networks that stretched across the ocean, connecting it with Europe and Africa. Its economy took off with the exportation of timber and sap from the Brazilwood tree, from which the country gets its name, and soon grew to encompass sugar production, and ultimately gold and diamond mining. Much of the dirty work was done by slaves, most of whom had originally hailed from Africa, and had been brought overseas via the infamous transatlantic slave trade. Because of its strategic location, Brazil always maintained close ties with both Portugal and Portuguese monarchs. This relationship was solidified, however, in 1807, when the royal family fled there to escape Napoleon's advancing armies, which were sweeping across Western Europe at the time. But with Napoleon's defeat eight years later, the Portuguese Prince Regent, Joao VI, having found life quite agreeable in the colony, was reluctant to return to his homeland. Indeed, the monarchy was more popular in Brazil but the Portuguese people didn't wish to be ruled by a far-off colony. Brazilians, however, countered that they wished to be raised to the status of nationals of the mother country. Thus, a compromise was reached with the establishment of the United Kingdom of Portugal, Brazil, and the Algarves on December sixteenth, 1815, with João VI as its first ruler. But this fledgling power wasn't to last. In 1820, a revolution broke out in the city of Porto, Portugal. Up to that point, the country's monarchy had been absolute, but this uprising sought to restrict the king's authority with the introduction of a constitution, the first of its kind in Portuguese history. This way, the Portuguese people would have the final word in government matters. No sooner had the revolution peacefully spread through the country did those involved demand the return of the royal court. With a heavy heart, King João set sail for Lisbon, leaving his son and heir, Pedro I, to rule Brazil as prince-regent. Two years later, the new constitution was ratified. In addition, the revolutionaries wished to return Portuguese exclusivity in the trade with Brazil, which would revert the latter country back to colonial status. This would reduce them to a mere principality, something of which Pedro I wanted no part. On September 7, 1822, he declared Brazil officially dependent from Portugal, with himself as its first emperor. With his wife, Empress Maria Leopoldina, Pedro I had seven children, of whom Pedro II was the only male to survive past infancy. As such, the baby was deemed the heir apparent to his father's throne, and was bestowed with the title of Prince Imperial. But when Pedro I sought to restore his daughter, Maria II, to her rightful place on the Portuguese throne after his brother, Miguel I, usurped, the emperor quickly abdicated after just nine years of rule. Upon his swift departure for Portugal, the Prince Imperial, Pedro II, was crowned emperor at just five and a half years old. Luckily for the young monarch, his father had assigned three of his closest friends to look after the child in his absence under their tutelage and care he received a well-rounded education as well as preparation for his role as leader the long hours of study were demanding with only two hours set aside each day for amusements though even these proved rather drab as he had no friends or interactions with anyone his own age the result was essentially the loss of his childhood and resulted in some rather unhappy formative years as he wouldn't be able to assume imperial authority until the age of fourteen a regency was formed that would make all executive decisions in the meantime this nine-year period proved to be quite tumultuous for Brazil, as those on the governing body couldn't agree on anything, leading to several political squabbles on both sides of the aisle. The public, taking advantage of this instability, led several uprisings throughout the country. By 1840, it had become clear that the regency couldn't rule on its own, and they implored the 14-year-old monarch to assume full executive power. Reluctantly, he agreed, at which time Pedro II was officially crowned emperor. It's important to note that the role of emperor in Brazil at this time was neither that of a figurehead like the British king, nor an autocrat like the Russian Tsar. The emperor exercised his authority in cooperation with elected politicians on both sides of the political spectrum. In the early days of his reign, Pedro II was able to work in tandem with said officials in relative unity, a complete contrast to the disastrous days of the regency. One of his first big orders of business in 1848 was bringing about an end to the illegal slave trade. Slaves were an important part of the Brazilian economy, doing much of the hard work and labor while their overseers reaped great profits. Working in tandem with the British, who had outlawed slavery in 1833, he was able to eliminate any further importation of slaves into the country. While the practice of slavery itself wouldn't be abolished until 1888, the practice of buying and selling slaves within his empire, both legally and illegally, came to an end. As politically volatile as South America was in the 19th century, it wasn't long before the subject of today's episode became entangled in conflict. Indeed, throughout his political career in rule, he'd lead his countrymen through two separate skirmishes and one near-miss that easily could have escalated into full-scale war. The first of these, in 1852, involved the Argentine Confederation, the last state prior to the birth of the Argentina we know today. Ruled over by a cruel dictator named Juan Manuel de Rosas, he laid claim to lands adjacent to the rio de la Plata, the source of which lies along the borders of Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil. Having supported rebellions in both Brazil and Uruguay, he was seen as a danger and nuisance by Pedro II and a man who simply needed to be stopped the emperor's solution was to form an alliance between uruguay brazil and those argentinians who'd had enough of rosas's tyrannical rule known as the platine war after the river over which it was fought these three factions ultimately succeeded in ousting the dictator thus securing the land claims and restoring them to their rightful owners in his book citizen emperor pedro the second and the making of brazil historian roderick j barman notes how the success of this campaign quote, must be assigned to the emperor whose cool head tenacity of purpose and sense of what was feasible proved indispensable Unquote. how like marcus aurelius indeed the second incident wasn't a conflict at all but that selfsame aforementioned near miss the like of which could very well have resulted in an outbreak of war between brazil and the leading imperial power of the age britain Upon returning from a successful trip to the northern provinces in 1862, Pedro II became aware of two minor incidents that had occurred during his absence. The first had been the sinking of a British commercial sailing vessel along the Rio Grande do Sul, after which its supplies were pillaged by the local inhabitants. The second involved the arrest of some heavily intoxicated British military officers, who were causing a raucous in the streets of the capital, Rio de Janeiro. Incensed by these incidents, the British consul to Brazil, one William Dougal Christie, sent the Emperor a scathing ultimatum in which he demanded that the Brazilian government resolve these issues, or else face the full wrath of the British Royal Navy. Neither Pedro nor the body of politicians with whom he worked yielded to the consul's demands, and set about preparing themselves for what they felt would be an imminent conflict. Not expecting the surprising turn of events, Christie ultimately ended up withdrawing his ultimatum, opting instead for a more peaceful approach to the settlement through international arbitration. This made the emperor's reputation all the greater amongst his people, for his country was one of the few in the world that had somehow evaded war with Britain. No sooner had the conflict with Britain been quelled did the outbreak of another loom in the wings. A civil war had broken out in Uruguay, pegging the country's two political parties against each other. As the nation borders Brazil, several Brazilians lived just within the Uruguayan border. Armed insurgents raided these Brazilians of their property and often killed them for pure sport. Not wanting to put any more of his fellow countrymen in jeopardy, as well as wanting to keep the bloodthirsty Uruguayan insurgents at bay, Pedro II ordered his troops to invade the country, rescuing several of his kinsmen and putting a stop to the conflict just two months after it had begun. Meanwhile, to the south in Paraguay, dictator Francisco Solano López took advantage of Brazil's distraction with Uruguay by invading the southern Brazilian province of Mato Grosso. His reason for doing this was to establish his own country as the dominant power in the region. In addition, he also sent troops into Argentine territory in preparation for an attack on the Rio Grande do Sul. But the Paraguayan armies of the day were notoriously inexperienced and lacked discipline. To prevent them from encroaching further into his sovereignty, Pedro II wished to personally lead his armies into battle to meet them, much to the opposition of those in his cabinet, the Council of State, and the General Assembly. In response, he famously retorted, quote, You can prevent me from going as an emperor, but you cannot prevent me from abdicating and going as a fatherland volunteer, Reluctantly granting his request to serve, he was deployed to Rio Grande do Sul, from which he disembarked overland with his fellow soldiers. Such a brave and selfless act was seen by the public as the most becoming of a leader, and they affectionately referred to him as the number one volunteer. From Rio Grande do Sul, he proceeded on to Uruguayana, a municipality in Mato Grosso, that now sits along the border with Argentina. By September of 1865, the town had been occupied and besieged by the Paraguayan army. The destruction they'd wrought was immense, to say the least, and would forever haunt the monarch. The ransacking and destruction of private property, the assaulting of women, the brutality enacted on the town's citizens. He pledged nothing short of total victory against these vile occupiers. But being a man of great military strategy and tact, he was able to negotiate with the enemy without firing a single shot. Instead, the emperor offered terms of surrender to the Paraguayan commander, who ultimately accepted In this way, Pedro II single-handedly prevented further encroachment into Brazilian territory. Despite his efforts, the conflict lasted an additional five years, during which time he focused primarily on the war effort. After seeing firsthand what they'd done to the citizens of Uruguayana, he zeroed in on completely vanquishing the enemy, no matter the cost. In a conversation with the Countess of Barrao in November the following year, he stated that, quote, the war should be concluded as honor demands, cost what it cost. Unquote. It soon became clear that he meant what he said. Working tirelessly to organize, equipped, and train soldiers, he deployed them to the front lines to secure the border with Paraguay. In addition, he ordered the fitting of the latest warships to protect the Brazilian coastline from any maritime attacks the enemy might attempt. Barman notes in his book how, quote, Difficulties, setbacks, and war-weariness had no effect on the Emperor's quiet resolve." Unquote. Finally, on March 1st, 1870, word reached the capital that López had died in battle, thus bringing the war to a close. In light of this news, the General Assembly suggested that an equestrian statue of the Emperor be erected in the center of the city, to commemorate his resolve and achievements during the conflict. Where other monarchs would gladly entertain such a notion, pedro the second politely declined, choosing instead to funnel the money for said monument into the construction of elementary schools throughout the empire. One might think this decision strange, especially given the egotistical reputation many monarchs have garnered throughout history. But as we've seen up to this point, Pedro II was no ordinary ruler. Essentially robbed of his childhood in preparation for assuming command of the imperial throne, the emperor, from his youth and throughout his professional life, read often and quite voraciously, as books provided him with an escape from the tedium and responsibilities of being head of state. Under his reign, three libraries were constructed within his residence at the Sao Christoval Palace, the collection of which contained an astounding 60,000 books or more. They also made him a dedicated patron of the arts and sciences, as well as an advocate for learning and education. In one journal entry from 1862, he wrote that, quote, I was born to devote myself to culture and the sciences, unquote. He himself studied photography chemistry, and linguistics, this last subject of which caused him to read, write, and speak fluently, along with his native Portuguese, in English, French, German, Italian, Spanish, Latin, Hebrew, Sanskrit, Chinese, Occitan, and the language of the indigenous Tupi people of Brazil. Much like the ancient likeness with whom he so often compared, Marcus Aurelius, he was a genuine intellectual, as proven by the friendships he cultivated with such figures and luminaries as Charles Darwin, Victor Hugo, Friedrich Nietzsche, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and Richard Wagner, among countless others. But he didn't limit learning solely to himself. As demonstrated with the funding set aside for his equestrian statue, he oversaw the building of schools and universities, even going as far as to award scholarships to exemplary students with money from his own personal finances. Knowledge for him was a matter of national importance and would elevate his country and people to the great cultural centers of Europe, Asia, and North America. Were I not an emperor, I would like to be a teacher, he once said, I do not know of a task more noble than to direct young minds and prepare the men of tomorrow. During his rule, such institutions as the Brazilian Historic and Geographic Institute, the Imperial Academy of Music, the National Opera, and the Imperial Academy of Fine Arts were all established. He even helped finance the Institut Pasteur in France, causing his friend Charles Darwin to famously remark that, quote, the emperor does so much for science that every scientific man is bound to show him the utmost respect, unquote. In later years, having been burdened beneath the weight of the imperial crown for several decades, Pedro II traveled extensively, taking both pleasure and, to a lesser extent, diplomatic trips to such destinations as the United States, Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. Grainy sepia-toned photos from this period show the monarch quite happily, sitting among friends and family before such landmarks as the Sphinx in Egypt, Niagara Falls at the U.S.-Canadian border, and even an ancient rock in Finland upon which he signed his name, which can still be seen today. All the while, Brazil was enjoying continued prosperity and reached the pinnacle of its greatness. But there were a couple problems behind the scenes, one that would likely spell the end of the beloved monarchy. With no male heir to assume command of the throne, it was appearing increasingly more probable that the Empire of Brazil would end following the passing of Pedro II. In addition, those self-same statesmen with whom he'd worked for many years were dying off, with a new generation of politicians filling their empty posts. This young blood, if you will, had not existed during the Emperor's, and Brazil's, for that matter, meteoric rise. To them, the monarchy was a remnant of the past, something that would ultimately wither away to make room for a new form of government, one that would send the country in an entirely new direction. To top it all off, the Emperor's health was rapidly deteriorating. It was the combination of these two factors that ultimately spelled doom for the Empire. By the summer of 1887, Pedro II's personal physicians recommended that he convalesce in Europe. While passing two extremely difficult weeks of ill health in Milan, Italy, he received word that the practice of slavery had been abolished altogether, a cause for which he had fought tirelessly throughout his reign. Bedridden and recuperating from this particularly nasty bout of sickness, he's quoted as saying, Great people, great people. Upon his return to Brazil the following August, he was welcomed warmly by the nation. For a short while, despite no heir in which to assume command of the throne, it appeared as if the emperor and the monarchy would at least last until his passing. But sinister forces were at work behind the scenes. While most of the country wasn't eager for a new form of government, one faction, the civilian republicans, a.k.a. those who favored a republic over a monarchy and had profited greatly from slavery, began pressuring army officers to topple the old order to make way for the new. Thus, on November 15, 1889, they arrested the prime minister, Juan Afonso Celso, and established the Republic of Brazil. For a while, the vast majority of Brazilians didn't even realize that a coup d'etat had taken place. Contemporary Brazilian historian Lidia Bessuchet recalled how, quote, "...rarely has a revolution been so minor." Unquote. Through it all, the emperor didn't even put up a fight. So tired and weary was he from his years of rule and his poor health that, when the insurgents finally came for him and his family two days later on November 17th, he simply said, quote, "...if it is so, it will be my retirement. I have worked too hard and I am tired. I will go rest then." Unquote. With that, he and the rest of the imperial family went into exile in France. Never again would they return to their homeland. The last couple years of Pedro II's life were lonely and melancholic. A few months after the imperial family's arrival in France, the empress, Teresa Cristina, died, leaving the emperor a widow gentleman. His two daughters moved to the south of the country while their father remained in Paris, moving from hotel to shoddy hotel with little money and expressing the desire in his journal to one day return to Brazil. Alas, it wasn't meant to be, for on December 5th, 1891, he died surrounded by his family. He was just 66 years old. The new Republican government, not wanting any backlash, refused to make an official statement, though the sentiment among Brazilians, especially those of African descent, was almost unanimously one of sorrow. He had been, after all, a hard-working and beloved ruler, one who had ushered in an era of change and prosperity for the nation, the likes of which hadn't been seen before, and some will say hasn't been seen since. Despite this, however, the Brazilian government didn't repatriate Pedro II's remains until nineteen twenty twenty nine years after his death. He now rests beside his wife Empress Teresa Cristina within the imperial mausoleum in the city of Petropolis, which was posthumously named after him, in southeastern Brazil. Few monarchs throughout history have been as beloved by their subjects as Emperor Pedro II. For nearly 60 years, he elevated Brazil from a fledgling independent state that had been reliant upon Portuguese sovereignty into a stable and solid modern nation perhaps the greatest in South America at the time. In the years since his passing, Brazil has seen a variety of leaders from all different ends of the political spectrum, none of whom have quite measured up or even come close to their beloved last emperor. It would seem that now, more than ever, Brazilians could use a Pedro II-like ruler, one who will not only put their people first, but also ensure a bright and enduring future for their nation. Muito obrigado. Thank you so much for listening. Pedro II was a truly remarkable man and ruler, and I hope you enjoyed learning about him as much as I did. As next Thursday is already February, if you can believe it, I'll be kicking off Black History Month with a look at the history of the Jews of Ethiopia, a rich and fascinating religious enclave in that East African nation. If you, like Pedro II, love learning and would like to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, where you'll find three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and sharing also help me immensely, so please do so on all streaming platforms. Join me again next week for another episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.